0: Well, yeah, yesterday was a really strange day um, in lots of ways. And I think it was fascinating to uh, see the Hoff just stood down. He's an incredibly tall guy, incredibly tall guy, and a real presence when he stands up and a a real uh, ability to communicate with people. But he stood up here and he gave a little bit of a rah-rah kind of motivational speech to the VIPs. And I always find it really fascinating whenever somebody is standing up and addressing people, the words that are used, that they are really important and things that are said are really important. It's not a trivial thing to communicate. It's certainly not a trivial thing to communicate uh, the word of God. Uh, but to stand up in front of anybody and say things is... Um, Really interesting to hear what's being said. Let me just give you a few snippets because it just, well I guess one of the things that really stood out to me was the, the amount that is invested in another person in terms of their worth and uh, the importance that many people who were here yesterday placed in a person. He was a really important person to them. We could say he was a hero to them. It wouldn't any way be stretching the word to say that he was a hero uh, for many people here yesterday. But there were a few things that really did make me smile. Uh, apparently, one of the enduring features of Knight Rider is because good always wins. Uh, we're kind of... I thought we we're kind of reaching the bottom of a barrel here if we're philosophizing over Night Rider, um, but we took on another step, which was that one of the enduring features of Baywatch, stop laughing, one of the enduring features about Baywatch is that it saves lives. I really thought, nah, <laughs> No, Michael. That no that's the feat that yeah that's his character, isn't it, anyway, Baywatch apparently survives because it saves lives. Kit, in conversation that had kit apparently is the ultimate, said with all sincerity, the ultimate father figure, so consistent, so faithful and I guess I took all of those thoughts and I thought, that's really interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating, isn't it? We had, I, I don't know the numbers, 15,000 people, I guess, through the centre yesterday. Huge numbers of people. There are many, many people in this world who are looking for a hero. But when we're looking for a hero, we are actually always looking for something that bit deeper. That's why we can say things like we have this enduring desire for good to win. We really want good to win. And so we'll attach all sorts of really tenuous things because we believe that good should win. We we attach all sorts of tenuous things... To the very noble idea that saving lives is a good thing. We attach all sorts of tenuous ideas to the incredibly important thing that real fathers are so important. The desperate need for relationship, the desperate need for life, the desperate need uh, for good to win. And I I would guess that as we peel away the layers of celebrity, as we peel away the layers of heroes in this world, as we look at what people are desperately looking for, at a very deep level, we're looking for all of those things. As we turn to this particular reading this afternoon, this, this story in the life of this man, Samson, we see actually that God's people... At this particular point in their time. They, they might not realize it. But they are desperately in need. Of exactly the same things. They are in need of exactly the same things. The tragedy is. That they, haven't, they don't realize it. They've become so accustomed to the world that they are now living in. A quick recap is that God's people have been placed into this land. The initial sweep through of Joshua, if you read in the book of uh, of Joshua, we see that Joshua seems to take the land and everything seems to be going well. That's the initial push. And then there's the ongoing uh, subduing. Uh, of this land that has been given to God's people. And you might say, well that sounds really awful, ethnic, ethnic cleansing and all of that kind of thing. Is this because the people were good in God's eyes? Not at all, not a bit of it. The reason that God has given the people to this land to the people is because he is actually using them as a judge of even more horrific uh, behavior on, the, on, the, on behalf of the people who are living in the land. The people who are currently living in the land are behaving in a horrific, terrible way. That they are bloodthirsty. The kind of people who, if we put it into today's context, the kind of behavior, behavior the kind of people that uh, the Security Council would put forward a resolution to deal with That's the kind of people that we're dealing with in the land before God's people go in. And so God is using his people as a source of justice in the land. The problem is that after the initial Joshua push, they start just absorbing everything that's going on. They just soak it in and they end up becoming quite like it. But God has a purpose. God has a purpose and we read at the very beginning of chapter 13 last week we said that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years as if to shake them up Uh, and then they don't cry out but we read a certain man of Zorah named Manoah uh, of the clan of the Danites had a wife. Uh, who was childless and God's uh, messenger came and spoke to her and said you're going to have a son and your son is going to begin the salvation of the people now that is at the very core of the whole of the story of Samson that very idea God's people do not even realize that they need a savior they don't realize any longer that good must win they've lost sight of it In fact, to some extent, they've lost sight of what good is. They don't realize anymore that life is what should be treasured. They've lost sight of their Father in heaven. They've lost sight of all of that, but God has not lost sight of them. And so He, in spite of the fact that they don't cry out for Him, He sends a deliverer. That is great news. If you want to know what God is like, that is what God is like. A God of grace, but a God of determination in the face of our failure. Quite honestly, I know my life. And because I have an insight into my life, I guess I have an insight into all of our lives to a greater or lesser extent. I know what we are like. We are not faithful people, are we? We do not work and continue to live the lives that we ought to live. And so, because we are like that, we need a God who is faithful. And that is one of the great streams running through the Bible. And it's one of the primary streams running through the life of this man, Samson. Really, God's people need a hero. Now we come to chapter 14. And in chapter 14, we start to see, well, how does this hero become evident? Well, Samson went down to Timnah and there saw a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, and you get the drift. Go and get her for me. I want her to be my wife. That's who I want. And um, the father and mother in verse 3 A little bit concerned, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all your people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? And that's it. That's the conversation that goes on. But, verse 4. Verse 4 really is the key for the whole of this next little story. Verse 4 says... His parents did know, not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. What's God like? What, what kind of authority does God have? What kind of intervention can God have in this world and what kind of intervention can God have in our lives? Look at what is going on with Samson. He is a paradoxical hero. He's a confusing hero. He leaves us with question marks when we look at his life. Let's have a look at him. He goes down and he sees this woman who is a Philistine. And he decides, that's the woman who I want to marry. Interestingly, just if you're going to be able to be here over these next few weeks, and you've been here for the last week as well, just bear this in mind because we're going to develop this at some point. The life of Samson is told through through relationships with four women. His mother, his wife, a prostitute, and the infamous Delilah. Relationship with four women. Here's the second woman, his wife. What a paradox. Samson has been appointed by God, determined by God, to be the one who is going to bring salvation for God's people from who? The Philistines, the people who are pressing them. The people who basically have them in slavish captivity to a great extent. The people who have taken their lands. The people who are living off the work of the Israelites. They do the work and the Philistines suck them of everything. That is what's happening in many parts of the world today. And it's exactly what was happening at this point in the history of the Bible. God's people are under oppression Samson is appointed to release God's people from the Philistines, and instead of becoming a saviour, he decides he wants to marry one of them. That's crazy, isn't it? He hasn't decided, hey, I tell you what, I know a great plan. I've just got this really cool plan. What I'm going to do is I'm going to marry a Philistine and that will give me great opportunity to infiltrate the Philistines and to de- strike a defeating blow for the sake of God's people. Not, not on his agenda. Not on his agenda. He has as much forgotten what was spoken of about him while he was growing up. He's become a headstrong young man who is just determined to do his own thing. But verse 4 says, parallel to that, God's got another plan. In fact, what Samson is doing, which is contrary to his calling, is precisely what God has got a handle on and is dealing with so that his purposes will be fulfilled. So Samson goes to see this woman, he finds her, he looks at her, and uh, he decides that's the woman I want to marry. It's just a great foundation for a relationship, isn't it? It's just great. Yeah, she looks good. Guys, don't follow Samson's example. Because it seems that he just continues the decision he's already made once he then speaks to her. Uh, And then the third time he meets her is just to marry her. It's just not a foundation, but isn't that important? What's being drawn out by the narrator here is that the very, the very relationship is a bit, it's a bit sort of unbalanced. It's not healthy, it's not good, it's not the way it ought to be. So he sees this woman and he tells his parents, right you, go and get her for me if you were uh, if you were put your uh, israelite sandals on for a minute and you read that if you had been reading this as somebody who's worshiping god through his word you would be shocked by that behavior because one of the things that god's people are called to do is to honor the father and the mother and here we have samson basically saying just go and do it he's just an impertinent obnoxious young man, who's ordering his parents about. But to be perfectly honest, his parents are just as complicit in the whole problem. What do they say? Isn't isn't there somebody else in our family or in our clan or in our people who you could marry? Last week, we saw that his mother and father came face to face with God. And the best they can do is say... Isn't it somebody else? They've been told that he's going to be a deliverer. They've seen God in Jesus. We saw that last week. And dad hasn't got the backbone to say to his son, Stop it. Remember who you are. So here we have this little cameo picture of just reminding us where God's people are. They are in a real mess. And it's not just Samson that's in a mess. It seems as though his parents who have seen God in this breathtaking, spectacular example of God's presence. It's as though it has not deeply impacted them to a point that they are really reshaped. And so they go down. And uh, on the way down, uh, they went down to Timnah to chat to this woman. uh, See whether her voice is as nice as her face, it would seem. Uh, And they go down towards Timnah, and uh, Samson is off on ahead, takes a diversion and a younger lion comes out to attack him. What we see on two occasions here in this paradoxical picture of of Samson is that although he's doing stuff, God's spirit is with him. Verse uh, 6 we see. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson, and he tore the lion to bits and, and uh, put the carc left the carcass in the vineyard. How did he do it? He did it by the power of God. He did it by the power of God's presence with him. He tore the young lion uh, with his bare hands. This this sort of uh, this hero figure of the Old Testament. Tears the lion to bits and leaves the carcass. Uh, and then they carry on on their journey. Sometime later, they go back again. And uh, ta- Samson takes a diversion. And he sees the carcass of the lion. It would seem at this point, if you can picture it without regurgitating lunch. It seems as though the carcass has been stripped of the, the flesh. And probably there, in amongst the rib cage, the of the bones that uh, the bees have created a, a honeycomb Samson goes over and he scoops out the honey and uh, he takes the honey and eats it it's fine isn't it well actually no that is, that is disastrous look at the way Samson behaves Uh, When he rejoined, verse 9, he scooped out the honey with his hands and ate it as he went along. Then he rejoined his parents. He gave them some and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. He didn't tell them. Why does the narrator specifically pick up on that and say he didn't tell them? Because if we remember what Samson was supposed to be, he was supposed to be a Nazarite. If we go back to the book of Numbers, what we find in the back book of Numbers is a Nazarite is somebody who, for the whole of the, perp- the um, extent of their vow period, they are to go through certain rituals. They are not to cut their hair. Various other things. They are not to drink strong drink. They are not to touch any dead carcass, any dead carcass, they would become unclean and anybody who they touched as a result would become unclean. And here we've got Samson who is a Nazarite from birth. He is set aside from birth who quite clearly is not living up to it. And he knows it because he doesn't tell his parents that he... He got the honey out of a dead carcass. You see what's going on? We've got a guy who is living a life and he's not living it in accordance with the way that it ought to be. And at the same time, we read in verse 6 that the Spirit of God was upon him and he tears this lion to bits. Anyway, we see the story go on. He sets them a riddle. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. I think that's actually the motto, still, for Tate and Lyle. Pretty sure it is. It's golden syrup. Little picture of a lion carcass with bees flitting around it, and the little, uh, the little riddle underneath. Fairly sure that's still the case. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong something sweet here he is he's down now with the philistines and they've appointed 30 it says it says sort of companions but the words that are used probably suggest that they were almost almost security guards almost keeping an eye on him but but in the guise of companions for his wedding and they go on this seven-day drinking binge during which he sets them this riddle. For three days they could not give an answer. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? They've got a problem now. If they can't tell Samson the answer to the riddle, they've got to pay up. They jumped in pretty quickly with the riddle, Because, you know, between 30 of them, surely they can sort out one answer. They jump in quickly. They all get a suit of clothes, which in those days was a massive gift. To have a second suit of clothes was a big gift. Uh, And if they can't answer the riddle, Samson gets 30 suits of clothes. And so they threatened to basically burn down our house. And the house of her father, as she can't get the answer. (laughs) She starts sobbing. Oh, she's whinging and she's moaning, she's crying. And why does the narrator tell us that? Because he's just wanting to show us here, you know, that the whole relationship is a real mess. The whole relationship is a real mess. What would have been the right thing to do? Samson, let me tell you what's happened. I've been approached, and they're going to burn our house down if they don't tell us, if if you don't give them the answer to the riddle. We're in trouble. That's relationship, but no. What she does is she becomes part of the the blackmail plot, uh, and the whole thing is a real mess. They come back on the very last day when he finally relents. When her crying just gets the better of him and uh, he tells her the answer. They come back to him and the whole thing goes off. Verse 18. Before sunset on the seventh day. The narrator just wants to dramatize it. We're getting right close up to the final point. The very moment where it's all payment time. Just before sunset they come with the answer. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? As if we just want a, a black marker pen to underline the relationship. Look at the derogatory way in which he, he speaks about his uh, wife. If you'd not ploughed with my heifer. That's, that is apparently as charming in Hebrew as it is in English. It's not particularly great is it? But doesn't it just say that's the way it is? Then we find verse 19. What is the result? The result is then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him again. God worked again through Samson. How did God work again through Samson? To go down to Ashkelon, to take 30 Philistine men, to kill them, to take their clothes, and to give them as a gift. And then he goes back and sulks with his parents. Now let's connect the dots. God's people are oppressed by the Philistines. God says, I'm going to send a deliverer. And God says, I will make sure that that deliverer fulfills even when that deliverer has lost the plot, I will set up a a situation where, what? Where he sees a woman, where a lion attacks him, where a uh, a lion's carcass becomes the honeycomb for a, a beehive, where the honey is given to his parents, where Samson then uses those very steps to create a riddle Which they find a way to blackmail his wife. And then answer. Which results in Samson becoming angry. And striking a blow against the very Philistines. Who God has said he is going to save them from. That is remarkable isn't it? That is God's determination. That he will save his people. In a sense Samson Achieves the purpose of God. He achieves the purpose of God. Without even at this point determining to do it. But look. What happens in that riddle? The strong is slain. And something sweet comes as a result of it. As far as God's people are concerned, the stronger slain, the Philistines. And something sweet comes of it. They get the beginnings of their salvation. You know, the thing is this. As we look at that and as we we see the beginnings of God's purpose in the life of Samson, the introduction of this man, one of the things that we realize is, to be perfectly honest, this hero isn't good enough, is he? This hero just is not good. What does he do? He begins the salvation? Yes, absolutely. He does it by God's hand? Yes, absolutely. The people are able to look back and as Hebrews 11 says, Samson acted in faith yes absolutely but he's not an ultimate savior is he he's not really good enough one of the ways in which god works and and if we can get hold of this it's as though you know sometimes you need a little piece that just drops into place to begin to see how the whole of the bible works together if we can see this it helps in so many ways God sets markers, indicators which become clearer along the journey. Because this saviour is only a pointer. This saviour is only ever a pointer. What is this book about? It's about Jesus. The ultimate saviour. It's as though Jesus is the very hub of the wheel. And every little story that goes on on the rim, the spokes attached to Jesus. The spokes point to Jesus. How does Samson do that? What does Samson point to us? Well it's like this. We cannot live with a paradoxical hero. We need an ultimate hero. We need a hero which sounds something like this. We need a hero who is not faithless to his father. We need a hero who is faithful to his father. And Jesus comes along and he says, let me tell you that I am here to obey my father. Everything that I do, I will obey my father. And so Jesus becomes a, a hero who, contrary to Samson, obeys in every way. We see Samson who, who is a Nazarite, separated, pure, holy, Perfect. And then we have Jesus of Nazareth. The ultimate Nazarite. The one who is ultimately pure. So when Samson takes from the carcass and touches the dead. And becomes unclean. In a strange yet wonderful way. Jesus touches the dead. But brings them to life. Jesus touches the dead but is not infected by the death. Jesus touches the dead and he brings life. Jesus touches the dead and he doesn't become unclean. He maintains his purity and his perfection. How do you think it is that Jesus was able to walk up to dead people and touch them or breathe uh, over those who were who were blind or touched the eyes of those who couldn't the eyes of those who couldn't see how do you think it was that Jesus was able to do that because he was saying i am the one who brings life i am the one who brings hope i am the one from who brings healing from me everything good streams because i am ultimately pure jesus comes as the son who is pure And then amazingly Jesus comes along and he confronts the ultimate roaring lion. Peter says this be alert now listen those of you believers in Jesus he says this to us be alert be sober-minded your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That is what we are facing and yet Jesus confronts Satan as he tempts him in the garden and he triumphs. And he is successful. And on the cross he rips apart the power of Satan and tears it to bits by dying. The strong defeats what seems to be strong. The strong in Jesus dies. But what honey comes out of that carcass? What honey comes out of the carcass that hangs on a cross? The sweetness of life for those who believe and trust in him. How sweet is it. It's so sweet. That the one who came. And was the ultimate son. Is able to be the doorway. For everyone who trusts and believes. To become sons and daughters of the living God. How sweet. Is that honey. How precious. Is that. That. I couldn't help but see how that connected to the, the empty and the shallow hope of celebrity. We desperately want good to win, but I'll tell you now, Night Rider or any other story of this world Or any other creation or hope of humanity. Or any invention or any organization which is fighting for good to win. And there are lots of organizations in this world that are fighting for good to win. And they're doing great stuff. But they can't ultimately bring the great success of good winning. They can't. But Jesus makes good win. He is my hero. And for all of the good that is going on in this world where people are making others live just that little bit longer. You know, Baywatch breathing hope into the the woman who's lying on the beach about to die as she receives mouth-to-mouth resuscitation with that sand-level camera shot. What trivial rubbish. But even the best of life in this world is only a temporary thing, isn't it? Even breathing life in real hope, in amazing real hope where we can bring hope to somebody who is about to die and they live. And they live and it's amazing, it's wonderful, it's fantastic, but it's only a little bit longer, isn't it? It's only a little bit longer. But Jesus brings life. Eternal life. Life forever. Wonderful, perfect, satisfying, hope-filled life. Jesus is my hero. I, I couldn't help wondering, at a really deep level, why somebody would philosophize over a car at being the perfect father figure. I don't know. Some of you might have, when you come to the Bible, a real problem with this idea of a father. You might have a situation in life where a father is not what a father ought to be. I don't know whether that's what prompted that comment yesterday, where a car could could replace the hope of a father. But I'll tell you this, don't look at fathers in this world as the ultimate answer to a father. Look at the father that is, is displayed in this Bible, a father who will never fail you, a father who is always there, who will never let go. When the chips are down, he is there without fail faithful to the end Jesus is my hero because Jesus brings me to that father we need a saviour we really do but the only saviour that we can really really stand in front of other people and declare with any hope is the saviour that is Jesus Jesus